You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Glad to be with you, Kyla. Yeah, and with me uh, in a car. Happy Friday. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, the there's a lot of sort of driving law-related stuff that's happened this week. We had the Vancouver police uh, announce that they are going to be using body cameras, which in and of itself is not a driving law issue. It, it's a test of, of body cameras. Um, it may not be a driving law issue, but it's going to have a huge impact because this is where most people have their engagement with the police is when they are investigated for a traffic offense. And one thing that Vancouver police, in my experience on their impaired driving files, has been terrible at has been good note taking of their observations at the scene. Um, in the arrest, uh, all the sort of circumstances leading up to their decision to read a breath demand or an ASD demand, body cameras are going to maybe help them out with the strength of their cases on impaired driving charges. Well, it's an interesting thing. And as a judge who's now passed away uh, once said to me in court, uh, video goes one way or the other in impaired driving cases most of the time. And so... Um, it will assist them in some cases, but in other cases, probably not. But, uh, again, it often resolves it. Like the, the fact of having camera there recording it often means it's the difference between a plea or a trial. And, Mm -hmm. uh, the, they're looking at the expense of doing this and the expense of disclosing, uh, the video and everything like that. And that's sort of one of the things that they've always held up as, uh, as an impediment to body cams, but I'll tell you, for the justice system, it's they save money in the end. Yep. yep. So. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I guarantee that there's lots of times that we get video and we see police officers really doing things wrong and really doing things badly, and it will make them better police officers in the long run. Yeah, so we'll be interested to see how that played out. I just also wanted to mention, like, if you want to see a really great interview uh, AK from our office was interviewed by Global News on the importance of uh, body cams and how it's going to sort of change the landscape in Vancouver. And I would highly recommend checking it out. There's a link on our website. Yeah, he did a great job. Uh, I think his, that was his first media interview, as far as I know, although I haven't discussed it with him. Uh, but Global came and interviewed him and he summarized it so well and so so quickly and uh and thoughtfully that uh, it's it's really worth checking out. We've got some really good lawyers, and Kyla and I may be the ones who are um, sort of on the on the way out, the the face of the firm now. Star, I, I'm on the way out. I'm the I'm the fading star. Um, you're um, you're you're still the star, and you're the face of the firm, and I'm sort of on the side. But the point is that uh, not everybody wants to uh, have that sort of exposure, and so that you know we've got experienced lawyers in our office who are not uh, not uh, out on Twitter and things like that. Uh, but there's also, you know, the junior lawyers who are up and comers like AK. Well, um, one thing that body cams won't change is the evidence in 
IRP cases. And I thought it was worth mentioning this story that came out. It was published in the Vancouver Sun on the 14th um, about BCRCMP nabbing 158 impaired drivers in a single day blitz. And if you want to see um, what my hand looked like back in probably <laughs> 2011, 2012, um, you can go to that. Uh, you can go to the link on the Vancouver Suns website because there's a picture of my hand holding an Alco sensor for Green Dot. I didn't have a DWF with me <laughs> see, that your day. Stars not fading. <laughs> so, and my face is blocked out entirely behind it and out of focus. But uh, they still use that photo. There's. There's, it's very funny because, uh, this, even the breathalyzer being used anymore. Well, but the stock photos that they use for, for breathalyzers so often are of course approved screening devices. And most of the stock photos that are out there in the media used in Canada are photos of our, <laughs> our breathalyzers. So our DWF that we have in our office, it's a star. Um, the, uh, FSTs are not often shown. They're still showing, uh, uh, in this, uh, in this um, article, the breath tester we no longer use uh, the Alco sensor for. But in any event, um, the photos, the stock photos that they use in the media are photos of our devices and us. Yes. So what I was saying um, is that the BC. You have something more important. RCMP. Yes. Yes. Then a, then a four minute, four oh. minute explanation of how great your hand is. <laughs> So the BCRCMP, um, along with local police forces, pulled over 6,000 vehicles in a one-day blitz across uh, BC. They issued dozens of tickets, and 3% of people who were pulled over were found to be impaired, allegedly. Well, we don't know what the actual readings are, but we're sort of assuming that that's people provided a fail on an ASD um, and that there were some sort of consequences after that or allegedly refused. Yeah. Now, I mean, eight, eight charged with drug or alcohol impairment under the criminal code, one charged with refusing a demand, 104 IRPs for drugs or alcohol ranging from 24 hours to 30 days, which is actually not impaired. Those would be yeah. warrants or 24 hour prohibitions. And then 46 IRPs for 90 days. 46 out of how many? Out of 6,000 6, drivers that were checked. So that's not that many in the grand scope of things. No. A lot of those people might have just been in the fail range and might have been driving just fine. And you have to assume that some of those people are innocent. And that's also going to include people who refuse to blow because, you know, free men on the land or... Uh, didn't think that the police had the authority to do it or weren't able to produce a sample. Tried to medical the device didn't work. Yep, yep. There's going to be people who blew into devices that probably weren't properly calibrated. Malfunctioning. I did get a laugh out of this. This was on National Impaired Driving Enforcement Day, which was on May 20th. Your birthday. My birthday. It was like the police giving me a birthday present. 6,000 people checked and a bunch of work for the next month. Well, yeah, there's work for us as a result of it, obviously. 746 uh, traffic tickets issued. We defend those traffic tickets, too. But I guess what it tells me is that um, despite the fact that there is a greater uh, chance in using the IRP scheme, there's no doubt that there's a greater chance of being stopped and being compelled to provide a sample and... Mm -hmm. and uh, if you get behind the wheel and you have been drinking, you run a 
a higher risk now because of the speed at which police officers can conduct these enforcements. Mm -hmm. um, and despite that, despite the fact that I think people know about that and, you know, we've had 13 years of discussion about BC having the toughest impaired driving laws and so forth, we've still got a fairly significant number of people who are undeterred mm -hmm. or innocent. Or innocent. And, you know, it would be really interesting if we ever got the results of of those 46 IRPs, of those, you know, 100 or so, 24 hours, three days, seven days, and 30 days IRPs, of those criminal code charges, and of those tickets, how many people ended up acquitted or had their prohibitions revoked? Interesting when I look at those three day, seven day, 30 day, and 24 hours, um, when we've got statistics in the past from the government on uh, IRPs and other impaired driving consequences that that uh, people faced over a period of time. We never saw numbers even close to that mm -hmm. um, relative to the number of ninety day IRPs. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm really suspicious of the number. Of course, the police compile it; nobody questions it. They disclose it; nobody questions it. Nobody ever looks into it. Uh, you know, I, I think somebody could dig a lot deeper into that and. The other and probably determine that the, um, it's it's not quite not quite accurate. The other thing I would be interested um, to see with with respect to this is how does this compare to previous years? Are we seeing an increase or a decrease when we're doing these massive blitzes? I know that we've seen decreases in obviously 2020, 2021, um, but then an uptick again in 2022 and, and the early months of 2023 of, of impaired driving enforcement consequences. Um, and I, you know, we can attribute 2020, 2021 to the effects of the pandemic, limited staffing, resourcing issues, even now is, is, you know, we're, we're what, 10 years into the latest sort of constitutional version of the IRP scheme, is it making a difference? Are the numbers decreasing at all in a substantial or significant way? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't either. As you and I have said before, it's people's immediate perception of whether or not they are going to be stopped and subject to police scrutiny that dissuades them from driving after drinking. Yes. Most people who are you know, go out and drink and persuade them and, and ask themselves that question. Uh, the next step in the questioning is, am I going to make it home without getting in trouble? Um, if they ask themselves that question, depends on sort of their state. But if they think they're going to get in trouble, if they think they're going to get stopped, if they think a police officer is going to be questioning them, most people will be deterred. And that's why public um, enforcement um, not just reporting on it after the fact, but the police actually being out there and visible and being seen by the public doing it uh, is, again, the best way to to discourage people from drinking and driving. Now, the other thing about people thinking they're going to make it home is that they don't always make it home, which brings me to our next topic. Yeah, the roads are dangerous. Um, driving is, uh, I wouldn't say inherently dangerous, but you know, here, what do we do? We, we, uh, our brains are made to maybe process information as fast as we run over millions of years of evolution, and then put us traveling at uh, high speeds with a method of 
mechanical intervention and then it's something different. So the BC Court of Appeal released a decision this week in the case of Heth, Heth Clems, um, which we have talked about on the podcast before. Uh, this was the case of the man who was uh, on his motorcycle. He was riding past an accident scene and apparently wanted a little bit of a looky-loo moment, but didn't slow down, knew that there was a slower-moving vehicle, an SUV, in front of him, um, and allegedly, uh, well, I guess that's a fact. Facts were found. Found as a track. fact. Found as a hard fact. To, hard to. Turned and looked at the accident scene for 10 to 12 seconds while traveling at highway speeds on Highway 1 in Abbotsford um, before going uh, sort of into the back of the navigator and killing his passenger. Yeah. So he's on a motorcycle and his, uh, I think it was his girlfriend, was his passenger behind him. Yeah. And they both uh, looked over at this accident that was on a parallel road. Um, and um, slammed into the back of this uh, of this SUV, and uh, she died. Yeah. And he was charged with um, dangerous operation of a motor vehicle, causing death. Going 120 kilometers an hour um, when captured on video. Yeah, that was shortly before, and there may have been some braking. Um, he survived it, uh, and I mean the the strange factual things are, I mean the speed, bearing in mind. You know, that he's looking away from the road mm-hmm. and the purported amount of time that he's looking away from the road ahead. Um, and of course, you're on a motorcycle leaning forward. I think this was a sport bike by the sound of it. So he had appealed his conviction and argued essentially that although the judge sort of identified the correct legal test, the marked departure test, she didn't actually identify in the trial how his driving constituted a marked departure from the standard of a reasonable person. Um, and that based on the facts that she found, that he looked away for 10 to 12 seconds, that he was going about 100 kilometers an hour, which was normal traffic speed on the roadway, it wasn't a marked departure from the standard of a reasonably prudent person, and he should have been acquitted of the dangerous driving causing death. Yeah, it seems to me that it, you know, it, it's so on the edge that I would be thinking that this is a, a carelessness rather than a. Well, it's interesting because you actually departure standard. When when I sent the judgment to you, you said, "Well, then what's the standard now for dangerous driving?" It seems like if you take your eyes off the road for a second, you may as well be convicted. Yeah, and that seems to be the implication here, um, and it's a concern. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know. I, 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 it makes you scared to drive. Yeah. Because if you if you just make a mistake, essentially a, a simple distraction, a simple mistake when you're otherwise being quite careful. Uh, you know, we have these previous cases, right, where there was uh, somebody looked down and and altered their radio, turned the knob basically on the on their radio, and they rear-ended somebody, and that was careless driving. And we all wondered whether or not that was careless driving. Now I'm wondering whether or not that person could end up being convicted of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing death like the uh it's a concern it's a, at what point is the court going to say look these are humans and this is not something that should attract uh criminal conviction and criminal consequences like even though somebody died the the, the dealing with the so for the longest time um the tendency in BC was to separate the consequences from the act. And that changed 
Um, the law changed on that uh, just by virtue of a court of appeal decision of another dangerous driving case uh, where it was clarified for us that um, that uh, you look at the consequences as well. Um, and, in, you know, in some respects, it's intellectually honest. In some respects, it's a bit of a concern. Uh, but now we see the development of it with this, um, where we're into a, you know, the next step of this, which is what seems to be on the verge of, of, uh, a momentary negligence, mm-hmm. um, constituting dangerous driving. I mean, as a result of the consequences, essentially. I also like I'm quite surprised at the finding that was made at trial of looking over at the other at the accident scene for 10 to 12 seconds. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, but if who who is making that observation? Somebody at the accident scene looking at this motorcycle and and counting the number of seconds that they're watching I don't see how while they're going at a 100 kilometers an hour. I don't see how you can have not have reasonable doubt how about that. that re- like, it's, how can you reliably make that a, finding a fact? And I get that, like, their house would be palpable and overriding error. But if it's just, like, was it a was it a, a failure to effectively cross examine the witness on it? Like, I well, the judge makes the finding of fact, and they do so with their you know honest belief of applying the law and the methods of assessing credibility. Um, I I just on the face of it, I struggle with that finding of fact. Um, the, um, I, I, I often struggle with the findings of fact, because I think about the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, uh, and sometimes it seems to get, or it's difficult to maintain that level of scrutiny. I mean, look, we see impaired driving cases all the time where you're looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, an intellectually honest assessment of this would come to this conclusion, yet... Um, when it comes to impaired drivers, it seems that the, there's a different standard sometimes. Um, and I, you know, I, I understand this is the justice system. It's not perfect. People cannot expect it to be perfect, but you know, this is what we've gotten until, or unless somebody comes along with somebody, something better, this is still going to be what we've got when we die. It's weird (laughs) that there is like, when it comes to driving, there is sort of a different standard applied to conduct. Well, when, it feels like a different it, standard, whether it is or not. Well, look at look at look at the mens rea for dangerous driving. It's not even real mens rea. The mens rea is a marked departure, but this doesn't have to be intentional. It's not like general or specific intent or anything like that, right? Like it's a, it's odd. Yeah, and it sometimes feel like it's uh, it's uh, society's vengeance instead of justice. Yeah, from our perspective, but of course we have a different perspective. Because this is the the world in which we live as driving lawyers. Speaking of justice, Paul. Time for the ridiculous driver of the week. The week. The week. The week. The week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. Now this one really does feel like justice to me. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, so this is a police officer in, you guessed it, 
Florida. Florida man's a police officer this time. Yep. Who was relieved of duty after a dispute over a traffic stop for speeding. Here's a, where body cam, cam comes yeah, in and it's all sort of clear. Uh, so, yeah, um, Alexander Shauni, I don't know how to pronounce his name, from Orlando, is facing charges as well as an internal review. He was arrested um, because a Seminole County Sheriff's deputy saw a marked patrol car speeding. He's in his marked police vehicle, but there were no lights or sirens. So he's just speeding in his police vehicle for no good reason. 80 in a 45 zone. This is miles, not kilometers. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the uh, 40, 35 miles an hour over the speed limit is uh, like 55 kilometers over the speed limit. So in Canada, in Canada, in Canada, you're on the verge of dangerous driving. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he, he, the deputy drives over 90 miles per hour to catch uh, this police officer who does not then immediately pull over. There's a pursuit. And then after he stopped, the the police officer's like, what? I'm going to work, my man. Why are you trying to pull me over? And you can watch the video. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, there's body cam video. Body and and then, you, video. then you see him drive off. Public. And I'm on my way to work. Yeah. What does it look like I'm dressed for? Pointing at his police uniform. He's such a douche. Yes. Uh, anyway, he uh, leaves and he ends up getting arrested, um, charged with reckless driving, resisting an officer, fleeing, eluding a law enforcement officer with their lights and sirens activated. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, um, pretty ridiculous and uh, from Florida. So that makes it great. And this time it's a police officer. So. That provides some context. Police officers are people too. They're not, think, uh, they make mistakes. They're not perfect. I got to say, like, it, it gave me great joy because earlier this week I was driving down Kingsway and there was an officer who activated lights and sirens, went into oncoming traffic to go through the intersection. But as soon as they were in clear of the intersection, they returned back to normal and continued driving. And I, I followed them. They pulled into the left lane at King, left turning lane at Kingsway and Knight. And then when the light turned, rated at the red light. But then when the light turned green, activated lights and sirens to go through the intersection straight from the left turn lane and continued this way the whole way down Kingsway. And it was obviously not a response to an emergency call because they ended up parking at 11th and Kingsway and just kind of wandering into a business there. Well, we're in Vancouver, so we tend to scrutinize the Vancouver police, and I see lots of bad driving, and uh, I mention it from time to time on Twitter when I see it, um, and uh, I think that probably it is recognized and uh, discussions take place when I do that. It concerns me when I see it. It is, um, you know, the police are often driving unmarked vehicles in Vancouver. There's lots and lots of unmarked vehicles, and it seems the junior police officers are very enthusiastic about driving unmarked vehicles. Um, and, um, this really, I mean, if you want to talk about things that, uh, that, uh, cause you to be concerned about the, um, application of the law, uh, this does always cause me to have less confidence in the police. Yes. And it's a problem. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. You start asking people about their confidence in the police. And this is one of the things that impacts confidence in the police. And it's, it's a concern. The important thing is 
one police officer in Florida is having to answer for their arrogance. And uh, I love it. And ridiculous driving. And they are our ridiculous driver of the week. So that's our podcast, Paul. Thanks. Uh, If you need to reach us about a driving law-related issue, please find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889. And uh, if you have any driving law stories you want to share with us, please send them over. And if you find a ridiculous driver, they may end up featured on next week's exciting episode of Driving Law. 